Hey folks, Jeff here, and welcome to the Shrink and the Pundit, a regular feature that our integral psychotherapist, Dr. Keith Witt, and I do every month. And uh, welcome, Keith. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great this morning. It's a nice, clear day in Santa Barbara. I was swimming in an outdoor pool this morning while the sun was coming up. It's a pretty beautiful day. Wow, sounds nice. It's it's cold here in Boulder. We're supposed to get some snow, so yeah, a, yeah, it's a good a good Christmas thing. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I like I like snow till New Year's, and then I'm ready for uh, the spring weather. But unfortunately, <laughs> in Colorado, we have four more long months of winter Jeez. after New Year's. It's yeah, it's, it's, the older I get, the more of a drag it is actually. <laughs> anyway, that probably is. Uh, Gets us to our topic, the neurobiology of shadow. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, it does. It's an, yeah, so neurobiology of shadow. I, I got to say that even as a title and a concept, I'm a little, you know, what's that? Because I always think of shadow as being a function of consciousness, of the left-hand quadrants, of how we yeah. think and see and symbols and all of that good stuff. And uh, you're actually talking about shadow in terms of the right-hand quadrants or brain and n- neurology and neurobiology. So let's Absolutely. just start with that. What, what, do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about here? Um, well, the, the reason that it's important, you know, it's, you know, we, there's, 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 you know the knowledge that, that it's just fun, you know, yummy knowledge. The earth is 93 million miles from the sun. That's fun. But it doesn't really do much for me in terms of how I live my life and so on. But there's also knowledge that is, is meaningful to uh, living, loving, healing, growing, and that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of neurobiology that's very relevant to how we handle uh, shadow, which is a big deal because all change work, all psychotherapy, all spiritual practices are deeply embedded in in shadow shadow being those aspects of ourselves that we can't perceive and there's shadow that's just we can't perceive because it's we're just not paying attention to it or we're not interested or it's not there and there's actual stuff we don't perceive because we resist perceiving it and the stuff that we resist perceiving is the most significant and relevant shadow for psychotherapy and spiritual development because that resistance creates uh, dissociations that block our growth and interfere with our health. So you're saying shadow shadow is shadow is the parts of ourselves, you know, our our whole four quadrant affair, I'm assuming, that we can't see, and it can be positive as well as negative, right? Yeah, it is quite often. Uh, In fact, uh, the positive shadow of not seeing yourself as a virtuous person, not seeing yourself as someone who's a value-added person who's who's committed to doing right. Uh, not seeing yourself as someone involved in the growth process, that actually uh, often is ma- much more of a problem than not seeing the parts of yourself that you're angry about or ashamed of or, f- or afraid of and so on. Because an important part of development is coming to grips with the fact that most of us spend a lifetime trying to be good and increasingly discovering that we are instruments of spirit on earth. And that's pretty heady stuff that we actually resist acknowledging and integrating. And a big part of shadow work is exactly that. Um, and so, yeah, the positive part of what we don't see is as important as the negative part. And there's also just neutral stuff that we don't see. Um, mm-hmm. And all that stuff is shadow. And all change work involves working with that. And it also is all relational. It's all our relationships with ourself, small self and large self, relationship with all that material in us and our relationships with the world and with other people and their relationships with us. And that's all shadow stuff. Okay, so then how, moving to the right-hand quadrants or my individual yep. exterior, my body, my brain, my mm-hmm. neurons, my nervous system, how does that figure into shadow? Um, every energy body has a physical body. You know, Ken's been saying that forever. Um, um, our nervous system, easily the most um, complex system ever that we know of in the in the known universe, runs our lives to a large extent. We have drives, emotions, um, 
um, inst instinctual needs, uh, predispositions that influence us on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And they don't just influence us alone, they influence us in relationship with other people. Because as we each walk through our universe, we are infusing everything in our universe with ourselves. And that means as we do that, we don't just see the universe, we see ourselves reflected back from the universe to us. And particularly reflected back from each other. And so you and I, as we talk, I'm seeing Keith reflected through Jeff as you see Jeff reflected through Keith, reflected through Jeff, reflected through Keith. Mm -hmm. um, and so all the, the reflections, you know, for every, for every order of, of, of reflection, you know, there's less, generally less awareness. And the less awareness, the more there's shadow stuff. All this stuff has neurobiological correlates. What's important about the you know, neural networks and also neuro, neurological principles about how um, we learn things, how we change, how we get fucked up, how we get unfucked up, and, you know, how we move through the world and so on. All that stuff is really important because as we learn about ourselves, as, as, we, as we grow, as we learn about relationships, we have practices and principles that are either consistent with our neurobiology or inconsistent with our neurobiology. And when it's inconsistent, when our upper right, when our upper, our upper left and our lower left is at odds with how we are wired, that creates disharmony neurologically and socially. Well, and what would be an example of that? Great example is spiritual practice. Okay. So um, spiritual practice, if someone engages in spiritual practice because they have a belief that they can be free from emotional suffering. And so they're doing spiritual practice to be free from emotional suffering. And their representation of being free from emotional suffering is they never feel bad. So shadow, remember, for, for 10,000 years, when we deal with shadow, we're, we're always dealing metaphorically with it. We're always dealing with representations. We're not dealing with the actual neurobiology. It's, you know, I can, I can imagine my left anterior, my right anterior cingulate cortex, which has to do with focused attention. I can imagine that lighting up while I do focused attention, but it's still just a representation of that area. I'm not, you know, actually seeing those neurons. Right. And so if this person creates a lower left, uh, uh, an upper left uh, quadrant standard, of, you know, I'm, I'm doing good, I'm doing beautiful spiritual practice if I'm free from suffering, and I'm doing ugly spiritual practice if I feel emotional pain. And they have a lower left standard of, um, I'm a good practitioner, I'm a virtuous practitioner when I don't have emotional pain, and I'm a bad, you know, non-virtuous practitioner if I get caught up in anger and lust and fear and greed and so on. What's going to happen neurologically is they're going to create judgments of themselves. Those interior judgments or disapprovals create shame reactions. Those shame reactions have physiological correlates. You know, you go into shame responses, and then your brain wants to avoid those shame responses. And as it does, it's going to elicit implicit memories about how to avoid those shame responses. Um, it's going to deny them. It's going to dissociate from them. It's going to uh, blame somebody else. It's going to do those kinds of things. And instead of doing spiritual practice and feeling yourself moving along nicely, you're a fucking mess, okay? Because your, your interior standards are at odds with how your brain works and how you grow. Um, that, this is particularly relevant with the shame dynamics because human consciousness is a young it showed up probably fully 50,000 years ago and, and partially about 200,000 years ago when we had developed language and symbolic communication and a sense of time going forward and backwards longer than about 20 or 30 minutes like all the other mammals, higher mammals. And so our nervous system, we're not genetically programmed to manage the power of consciousness. So when, a little, when little kids... Uh, uh, develop a sense of self around 18 to 24 months and can observe themselves, they've already had two years of programming about 
how, wh- how available they are to dissociate or not their nervous systems, and from about 11 to 20 months about what is right and wrong. There's a lot of socialization with approvals and disapprovals and shame reactions and, and approval reactions. And as a child starts observing themselves, they start having their own approvals and disapprovals. And when they have negative reactions, when they have those shame reactions, they avoid them. Their nervous systems don't like those reactions. And they avoid them by developing defensive patterns, you know, denial, uh, projection, projective identification, all that stuff, you know, repression. And we can't self-regulate that stuff until our brains are mature enough uh, to be formal operational, 14, 15. And so our brains have... 12, 14 years of practicing those defenses, inculcating them. Those neural networks are activated repetitively and heavily myelinated. And so by, by the time that, that all of us reach uh, teenage, we have a, teenage years, we have an awful lot of reflexive reactions like that that cause suffering. And that's why it's a necessary skill if you're a human being to be able to be self-reflective and be able to have the, the, the tools to refine values and to grow you know, enter shadow work, because shadow work goes to those barriers where we resist perception. And with the help of somebody uh, guiding us or with the help of our own interior principles, helps us penetrate those barriers, find the material and refine the values. And as we do that, we become more coherent neurobiologically. As we become more coherent neurobiologically, you know, our brains are complex systems. We actually become, uh, have deeper consciousness and more compassion. We have less suffering uh, and we have more wisdom. But it's a, difficult, it's a difficult process. Being a human being is, is enormously challenging. And unfortunately, throughout history, people who've developed shadow work, you can do anything with a metaphor. And so the metaphoric systems all have, uh, to a certain extent, have areas where they overpromise. And what you do with a human being when you overpromise, a human being will develop over expectations because we all have an instinct for self transcendence. Mm-hmm. And if that instinct for self transcendence gets turned into chronic dissatisfaction or chronic shame, you know, with with ourselves or with others, that leads to a distorted life. Um, you know, we, we, we don't grow or we have pseudo growth. If we understand right. those principles, we can have our developmental processes and our, our shadow work be consistent with how brains actually work um, in relationship with other brains. And that accelerates coherence and it eliminates some of those paradoxes that I was just talking about. And those paradoxes cause a lot of problems. Yeah, well, I guess I could see how, of course, every left-hand quadrant thought or, or, you know, judgment, whatever I'm doing, shame, has Mm -hmm. a right-hand... Um, corollary in terms of something yeah. going on actually in my brain and nervous system, and those are arising at the same time. Uh, right. Now, most psychotherapy is talk therapy and that sort of thing. Is uh, the entree is through the left hand quadrants? Are you t- it's talking about therapies? I'm thinking of like ne- uh, neuro linguistic programming or yeah, there you these go. therapies that actually work with the nervous system, the entree is the right-hand quadrant, or even movement, martial arts, ritual, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, the, first of all, remember all, all the quadrants are always happening all at once. So, yeah, the entree is through, is through dialogue, but to a certain extent, the, the entree is, is, is from, it, to a certain extent, um, is from the right in that when somebody comes into therapy or, or even they go to a body worker, what do you do? The first thing you do is you, you start talking to each other. Right. You're sharing representations about what, the, what you want to do. You know, if you want something done to your body or you want something done with your psyche or your relationships or something, you and somebody engage in a series of representational transactions, you know, basically lower right dialogue, that has a lot of resonance, of course, in the left quadrants, that begin to guide you into, and, and what you do in psychotherapy is you're always, again and again, you're always integrating the subjective experience with uh, the representations, always, within a context, a developmental context. You know, in, in, in the spiritual practice, you see the difference between the gradual schools and the sudden schools. You know, the sudden schools say you have instant awakening and you're one with everything all the time. And the gradual school says you do gradual process and, you know, and there's, it's like more like a growth mindset. 
both of them have certain kinds of, of pro- problems with them. But one of the problems with the sudden school is it forgets the fact that we all always are operating in a series of hardwired values that, that are neurologically programmed. You know, our brain monitors millions of inputs, picks seven plus or minus two, um, and those seven that it picks has to do with safety and not safety because brains are, are wired for threat. And, and it picks what is um, attractive or not attractive or good or not good. The beautiful good and true are actually hardwired validity standards that the brain is constantly looking at the world around. It picks seven plus or minus two, creates an emotion and an impulse that's designed to help us, and a little story that supports that emotion and impulse. That takes about 40 milliseconds, 60 milliseconds. And then about 400 milliseconds, we d- discover ourselves in the midst of an impulse and a story and an emotion. And then our left hemisphere, our conscious self, can actually decide what to do with that. Okay? So I don't decide to get frightened or angry or ashamed or any of that other stuff. I discover myself in the midst of that and then have to decide what to do with it. Knowing that is tremendously comforting to people. Because people tend to, uh, and, and a lot of the modern psychotherapies have, have made a mistake with this, they, they, they emphasize personal responsibility so much that they tell people, well, you just, you're just choosing to be ashamed. You're just choosing to be angry. You know, you're just choosing to lust after that person. You know, you're just choosing, well, excuse me, you know, I'm not choosing that initially. You know, my brain chooses that for me. I really don't have much to do with that. What I do with it after my brain chooses it has a lot to do with me. And that's very much value-driven, and it's also knowledge-driven. And knowing how my brain works really helps me be accepting of the process. And if I'm accepting of the process, what that does is it amplifies, it accelerates neural integration, coherence. You know, what we want is everything to work together. But, you know, in human brains, that doesn't happen a lot um, in certain areas. Uh, You know, for instance, teaching people how to be soldiers. Okay, to teach people how to be soldiers, you basically have to teach them to dissociate from the part of them that does not want to do violence to another person. Biggest problem that armies had in the 19th century is soldiers would not fire at other human beings. They just shoot their guns in the air. They discovered that by, you know, looking at it, and they had to change their training to just really teach these guys to dissociate from their inherent human repulsion to do violence to another person so that they would shoot at people. And so they were teaching them, on one hand, to be more complex in terms of being uh, better, you know, killers, better soldiers, but they were also teaching them to be way more fucked up because they were dissociating from the human part of their brain, and that led to a lot of problems that we're still seeing today from Iraq and from Afghanistan. And we're going to have 50 years of problems from those soldiers because of you know, what they had to go through. Hmm. And so, you know, in that sense, doing violence to another person under those circumstances isn't coherent. Weirdly, If you're a mixed martial artist and you get in the octagon and you literally try to kill another person for 15 minutes um, and then at the end, and and even kill them, but usually not, do a lot of damage, you don't suffer psychological damage or post-traumatic damage from that because that feels like a virtuous activity to you. You know, you both chose to be in there and kick the shit out of each other, you know, looking for that contest. And so the, the violence, the damage that you do is not experienced as traumatic by your nervous system because it's coherent with your identity with yourself as a warrior and with the other person as a fellow warrior that you chose to do battle with. So that's a huge difference between being a soldier and being a warrior. And there are neurological uh, correlates. We can predict those reactions knowing how the human brain works. Yeah. And so, well, it was an interesting story on 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago about some of the new therapies being done on these soldiers with post-traumatic stress disorder from exactly right. what you're talking about. Yeah. And if, if, I'm, if I'm recalling it correctly, they actually just had them relive it over and over again. Yeah, there's a, this is another area where neurobiology really helps shadow. If you look at all shadow work, like say the uh, the integral three two one shadow work, you know I feel bad. I'm bad. I'm, I feel bad because you fucked me over. I'm now I'm projecting myself onto you. I'm looking at the part of me, you know, third person, second person, first person. 
I accept, um, care for, and regulate the part of me that I'm projecting onto you. Uh, I create integration three, two, one. Or Byron Katie, judge your neighbor, write it down, ask four questions, turn it around. Turn it around, yeah. Okay, that's all. That all shadow work involves um, taking parts that are dissociated, that are separated, and connecting them in an, in an accepting environment with positive intent. What modern um, uh, neurobiology has told us about memory is that there's two kinds of memory. There's implicit and explicit memory. The explicit memory is what, what was the weather like this morning? You know, it feels like a memory. It starts around 18 months old when your hippocampus is mature enough. But implicit memory starts in the third trimester where your brain is perceiving the world and creating expectation patterns of how the world should be and how you should be. And that's happening all the time. And then those expectation patterns extend and, and we continue to have implicit and explicit memory. And when we have an implicit memory, we get freaked out, but we don't have a sense that anything's being remembered. The problem with PTSD is people will have one trial learning where their brain will get instantly rewired. Their autonomic nervous system instantly rewired. There'll be a traumatic from this, event. That from, they, this, from this violent act or this, yeah, okay. Yes, so that one traumatic act, event, one traumatic event can rewire the brain. In one second, your whole autonomic nervous system can be rewired and stay in, the, in that dysregulated, rewired state pretty much indefinitely until you do the, the necessary healing work. The reason that that's happening is because you're simultaneously re-experiencing the experience, you're reminded of it, you're, the part of you that wants to survive is seeing little reminders of that experience and going into hyper-survival mode, and you're simultaneously resisting remembering it. And then yeah. engaging in all kinds of self-destructive activity, you know, alcoholism, you know, addiction, uh, you know, compulsive sex, whatever, suicidal thoughts, depression. Okay, so there's implicit, explicit memory. Um, generally, uh, post-traumatic stress reactions are just completely wire your, your implicit system. Now, if you, the brain doesn't want, human consciousness, human brains want to be more complex. They want to go to greater complexity. And so what you do when you take a, a person into a room, say, you know, I'll take you into a room, you've had PTSD. In this room, you feel safe. Your brain is in a, in a place of social engagement with me. Um, you know, you're, you're probably somewhere in beta, but you know, your blood pressure maybe is, and your, your heart rate, they're all in social engagement mode. And so within the context of that, I go, okay, now let's go a little bit into the trauma. You go a little bit into trauma, you start getting alarmed. And I go, well, now come back here. Now go in a little bit into trauma. So as you do it in all the systems, EMDR, uh, neurofeedback, all the systems basically involve doing this, creating a dual focus being in the present moment, being a human being who, who, for instance, who is safe, going back to that human being who thought was, he was going to die. Now, if you just keep those in consciousness and you feel the emotions on both sides, but not too much, what the brain does is it naturally integrates them to greater complexity. Greater complexity is you have that traumatic memory, but it's like all the traumatic memories. It's like when you had your appendix out or when you fell off your bicycle and broke your collarbone. It's like that. Now, it's not as simple as this because say, you, say the tra trauma isn't an explosion. Say the trauma is you had to kill somebody and watch them die. You know, or, or, or you know, accidentally kill a kid. You know, I mean, just horrible war things. Just, right. I, get, I get so angry when I talk about this because you know, the, the war is, the, is the, most, the, the... Killing another human being is probably the most destructive thing you can do besides killing yourself. You know, and to have that ever happen unnecessarily is just obscene to me. But anyway... So now you have a value system of I'm a bad person having killed another person. I should exist in a state of shame. I should. But then there's this thing of, well, you know, I was ordered to do it. And, you, know, I, you know, I was doing the best I could, you know, whatever. You, you, you combine those things together. And as you do this, what happens is not just you begin to integrate the trauma, your value system becomes more refined. Your value system says, yeah, I can be someone that has done something horrible, but, you know, I'm still trying, I'm trying to be a good person now, and, and that fits within the, the, the framework of a good man. I can be a good man again or a good woman again. Okay? But now my value system has to be refined because before it was, I can't be a good man or a good woman and having done something like that. And now is well, you know, if somebody does the right kind of reparative and healing work, they can be. Okay? 
And so our lower left quadrant needs to be refined. But we resist that because to refine it, we have to go into the trauma. We have to go into the areas where we have judged ourselves badly and where we feel such profound sense of fear and shame. And so the, knowing the neurobiology of that, in fact, there's some evidence that when you remember a traumatic event, you open up a window that lasts about five hours where if you have a disconfirming event that you can hold at the same time, that you can cre create reparative experiences that will reintegrate and reconsolidate that memory. And so the memory will have progressively less trauma associated with it. Um, the, the acronym, for the thing that I use for this is you add compassion and let it happen. That any time you have a memory and you invest um, compassion in it, you basically are, are refining and reconsolidating that particular memory. And if you do that enough, um, trauma can be integrated and digested. Um, and not only that, the processes, the practices that you use integrating and digesting trauma are practices that are consistent with spiritual growth, relational growth in general. Um, it, it's, it's along the lines of, you know, the AA system, the 12 steps system is a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual program that's based on abstinence from alcohol. You can say the same thing about trauma work. It's a spiritual program that's based in someone being crippled by a trauma. And then as they learn how to resolve it, they're developing neurological tools and capacities in their brain and myelinating circuits in their brain that have to do with growth, that have to do with bringing paradoxes together and holding them until your, your nervous system can integrate them into a more complex, more uh, whole, which in humans is more compassion, is deeper consciousness. And understanding right, so the neurobiology helps. So you, you, well, fair enough. You work with people all the time in your psychotherapy practice. So yeah. somebody comes in and uh, I'm depressed or mm -hmm. I have an anger problem or I have too much lust in my heart or I have social anxiety. How do you work with me? How do you work okay. with people using these ideas? All right. So first of all, so let's, let's do it the fun one first. You know, you come in and you go, you know, I have lust. Okay, you know, every guy is, yeah, I want to fuck him. That is the fun one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do with that. You know, my, you okay. know, my lover, you say, you know, say you're, you know, you're gay. So, you know, you, you have your lover. My lover is complaining because I'm looking at the other guys just thinking about fucking them all the time. And he's all pissed <laughs> off at me. What do I do about not looking at guys who want to fuck them? Okay. So the first step I say is, you know, your brain is wired to look for whatever answers its drives. Lust happens to be a drive. And so you're going to look at guys who want to fuck them. Okay, so you can, now you can look at a guy for a second and want to fuck him and not be, you know, too obvious about it. Or you can look at him for five or six seconds and want to fuck him, be obvious about him and really piss your lover off. But you can't turn off the circuit of looking at guys who want to fuck them. That is just how your brain goes through the world. I've had this with couples. She, she, he looks at women all the time. I go, well, he's going to look at women, so we're not going to stop him lusting after women because that's what his nervous system does. What we're going to do is we can teach him how to lust after women in a way that's more pro-social and doesn't irritate you so much. Now, this is comforting because she's been pathologizing <laughs> that's, that's, that's the best we can do, huh? That's the best we can do. <laughs> all right, keep going. Okay, so, so that's very comforting to people. Yeah. It's also comforting so somebody comes in depressed, okay? And so, go, all right, so you, you want to be less depressed. I go, well, you know, to, to be less depressed, you need to cultivate um, neurogenesis in the front part of your brain, and these are the things that do that, and these are the things that interfere with it. Now, most depressed people unconsciously just do all the things that interfere with neurogenesis in the front part of their brain. For instance, they don't like to exercise. They don't like to sit out in the sun. They don't like to engage in pleasurable activities. They don't like to folk do contemplative work. Particularly people who've had trauma don't like to do contemplative work because they go right into the trauma. And so you let them know, okay, if you do this work, you're activating areas in your frontal cortex, particularly your right frontal cortex. And if you do this enough, your brain starts naturally self-regulating towards um, less depression and more engagement with the world. And it takes a while. People want instant um, uh, results when they come into psychotherapy. And every once in a while, they have the subjective experience of an instant result because there's, 
there's certain states that you enter, you know, states of shame or fear or anger, and you can have a reparative insight that can change that state almost instantaneously, which is fine. But as we all know, state changes aren't trait changes. And letting people know that there's neurobiological principles involved here, that, you know, that, you know there's a gradual growth uh, curve that, you know, that, that you have to follow um, is very, first of all, it, make, it makes you more persuasive, and to a certain extent as a therapist, um, uh, you really need to be persuasive. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a great book called The Talent Code where this guy, Daniel Cole, Cole went to nine places in the world that produced super geniuses, like the nine little renaissance places around the world. He was saying, well, how do you guys do this? How do you produce these super great soccer players and these super uh, violin players and, and um, you know, these super physicists and stuff? How do you do that? And then he talked to the neuroscience scientists about it, and they found out that there were actual elements. You know, they actually went deeper into the 10,000 hours. And there's neurobiological principles involved. And one of them is if you do something, you're creating a neural network, and if you maintain that, you practice it, there's cells in your brain, oligodendrocytes, that myelinate those circuits. And the more heavily myelinated the circuits, the more automatic the behavior becomes. And it takes, you know, about 10,000 hours, but there's, you can accelerate that in particular ways. And the particular ways that you accelerate it is, one, you, you have to ignite somebody so they're passionate enough to do the work, which, you know, therapists have to do that in some fashion. You have to ignite somebody to be passionate about reducing their anxiety or, or their depression or about growing or about having better relationships or about, you know, being more intimate and having better sex and stuff. Then you need to help them engage in what Coyle calls um, deep practice. And deep practice is having a vision of where you're going and breaking it up into pieces and practicing that and changing time repeating it and getting a feel for that that the developmental process if you go forward to the point where you make a mistake and then you come back and correct and so on psychologically this is very hard for perfectionists because perfectionists people with fixed mindsets hate making mistakes and so you need to let them know if you don't allow yourself to see a mistake as a positive step in your development you won't develop and you know and letting them know the neurobiology of that helps that process and so you ignite them with inspiration. You help them do deep practice. And then as the, in these talent beds, what, the, what the, the coaches were able to do is attune to people. And then when they reached a little stuck point, they would give them a little bit of input about how to get unstuck and help that process. And you can play this back over all the spiritual teachers you've had and all the great therapists you've had. And that's what they do. Um, they do that when they're teaching you new skills and they're doing that when they're helping you deal with endogenous pain. And it's very useful to know the, the neurological principles here because knowing that helps you as a therapist not perpetuate cultural pathology. You know, I, I, I would love to talk to Byron Brown once. He wrote a book on shame. He's one of the Diamond Heart guys. And I wrote a book on shame. His book on shame is filled with all kinds of negative comments about shame. You know, shame is just this horrible thing. My book is filled with, you know, shame is a social emotion that helps us grow, and we need to be able to integrate uh, processing and feeling shame into our life um, in a way that normalizes it as another developmental aid, just like joy is a developmental aid and fear and anger and all the emotions. Um, but culturally, we've pathologized it. And so that, that pathologization of, of, of shame makes, it way, makes its way into psychotherapy. It makes its way into spiritual practice. And then it makes its way into the way that people judge themselves. Same way with anger. So if I'm angry, then I'm a bad person. No. If I'm angry, my nervous system has generated an anger response. I have some kind of probably implicit learning and some kind of habitual response to create anger in certain situations. And if I want to change that, there are certain steps that I need to take. Um, and if I have judgments about it, I need to refine my values. And there's certain steps I need to take about that. And those values are based in certain circuits, particularly in the frontal lobes, that can be altered, but they can't be changed completely. And so knowing what's possible from a neurological perspective, neurobiological perspective, really helps organize people in terms of being self-accepting. And it eliminates a lot of that drive that people have of never good enough, never good enough, never wise enough, never happy enough, that kind of stuff. That's a corruption of the, of the native evolutionary impulse for self-transcendence. You know, 
human consciousness takes these drives and just expands them to basically huge levels. And we have to, we, our consciousness needs to integrate that stuff into something that's more realistic and more practical. And knowing the neurobiological boundaries and the interpersonal neurobiological boundaries, really, you know, for instance, you and I, we have a relationship. And so say I said something mean to you, you would feel bad. You know, you're a bad guy. Okay, okay. You would feel bad and your nervous system would consolate a defensive reaction instantaneously. You know, if you really believe me. I know you don't believe me, so it's not working. But, you know, you get my point. Okay? And then we would start a reciprocating series of, of defenses to find to protect ourselves, but would look from the outside of us being more aggressive. When we do that, the attachment systems in our brain get deactivated. We lose capacities for self-reflection and empathy. Now, this is very important when I'm helping people in relationships and everything's relationships, so that's like 90% of my work, whether it's an individual or a couple. Because the stuff that they learn when they're in a relaxed state in my office is not going to be easily available to them when they're in a defensive state. And I'll tell them, you know, you're not going to feel like looking at yourself when you're mad at him. And you're not going to feel like empathizing with him. That's the last thing you're going to want to do because those circuits are shut down when you're upset. Now, if you know that, you can reach for empathy and you can reach for self-reflection consciously because our left hemisphere can do that. That's the most recent, the left frontal lobe is the most recent neural territory that's developed evolutionarily. It's slower than the right, right hemisphere, which has to do with habit and integrated map of the body and autobiographical narrative and all that stuff. But it has more choices. So that's why when we learn a new habit, we use our left hemisphere to choose to do the new habit hundreds of thousands of times until after a while it makes its way into the right hemisphere, which learns much more slowly until it becomes an automatic habit. And, you know, the information processing is very different on the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, really two different brains. Knowing that really helps people when they go, well, how come I got it in the office and then I went home and had the same damn fight with my daughter? Well, that's because this is how your brain works. That's how. And so this is what you do when you're in an aroused state. And if you're too aroused, there's a threshold beyond which you can't relate with anybody, and that's a good time to go take a walk. Mm-hmm. That's a good time to take deep breaths. So somebody says something to me, and it hurts my feelings, and I feel bad. So, okay, normally I might do, you know, I might try to get back, whatever, but mostly I just beat myself up and feel bad and self-rumination and all of that stuff. So you're saying rather than do that, do what? Well, first of all, recognize, oh, that's my habitual response to being attacked, to attack myself. Okay. Yeah. Now, that can lead us into a lot of different... Let's say we're, we're talking about implicit memories. So probably there was a point in your life where your nervous system decided that attacking yourself in the face of someone else's anger was the safest thing to do. Now, say you had a father who was mean. And so, that, you know, when a, when a mean father gets mad at you, probably the safest thing you can do is start being mean to yourself. Really? Because as a father, that will change his state of consciousness. It will be surprising. And so a nervous system will decide to do that. That's not a conscious decision of a child. That's a child's nervous system looking for something that feels safe. Okay, but since you have a brilliant human brain, you start rationalizing that response. You start going, yeah, it's a good idea to attack myself when someone's mad at me. And then you practice that. Practice, 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 practice. Until finally, you know, you come to therapist and you go, you know, Keith, somebody gets mad at me. And then I turn into just getting pissed off at myself. So we go back and we go, oh, so here's this, this, this place where that really worked for you. You go, yeah. And I go, well, tell me a signature event. You go, well, you know, I scratched his car. You know, he picked up a stick. He was going to hit me. I said, oh, and I picked up a stick and hit myself instead. And he dropped his stick. And I got, and at that moment, I just, boy, really, I was so scared of him. And I, and I was so mad at myself. I go, okay, so that was a moment where getting mad at yourself really worked. Now, Let's fast forward to right now. So right now, is getting mad at yourself really working? You go, no, getting mad at myself sucks. It gets in the way. I go, well, hold those two things together. Now, as you're holding those two things together, your brain is reconsolidating that memory. It's going, wait a minute, Jeff. Be mad at yourself. It's the right thing to do. Be mad at yourself really sucks. Wow. You pr- say you practice that. I give you an assignment to practice that. 
you practice that, your brain will naturally integrate that to a place where you start noticing yourself getting mad at yourself. You're going, no, that doesn't work. You know, I just need to accept who I am and make a repair and move on. Okay. That's working with the principles of neural reconsolidation, memory reconsolidation, based on neuroscience, to take that, that tendency that, and to take the value, and the value is protect myself. The value is don't let people hurt me. And refine it to the point of, yeah, I can do that without attacking myself when someone's mad at me. Um, and so the neurobiology, the right quadrants fit really well with the left quadrants here. But, you know, but what if, what if I instead I said, okay, Jeff, I tried to talk you out of it. Yeah, yeah, don't be mad at yourself. Be mad at yourself sucks. You know, that doesn't work. You know, no, 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 no. You know, well, you'd agree with me, but then the next time someone's mad at you, you'd get mad at yourself. You know, we hadn't reconsolidated that area. We hadn't gone to that value and refined it. You know, that's program. That's heavily myelinated. That needs to be included in a new neural network that's a more sophisticated neural network. Now, I as a therapist, knowing that, it makes it a lot easier for me to work with people because I, I, know, what I, I know the clay that I'm working with, with them, you know, helping them sculpt it. I'm not trying to do something that's impossible or trying to get them to do something that's impossible. You know, I know it's possible, but I also know that, that people will have inhaint, innate resistances to doing that stuff, mostly based in dissociation. And those dissociation circuits start with birth. You know, all kids have some capacity. Kids that are neglected have way more capacity. And the more capacity you have for dissociation, the more deep your defenses are going to be and the harder the work is to reprogram them. And that's shadow work. Yeah. And knowing that stuff just, really helps you. Go on. Yeah, it just makes me realize just how fundamental the whole process of self-observation is the the ability mm -hmm. to take what was subject and turn it into object so that i can see my emotions and see my anger and see these reflexes from a, a, a bigger from a position of not being them you know see them yeah. instead of instead of be them and just how fundamental this is to development how fundamental this is to contemplative practice and how fundamental it is to psychotherapeutic practice, right? It's just primary. And yeah. it's interesting and to, 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 to know that you have an innate resistance to seeing them. Yeah. So when you start seeing the resistance as well as them, and you don't pathologize yourself, oh, I'm such a you know, neurotic guy, or I'm such a bad guy for, for resisting awareness or self-observation. No, no. And now I'm, a, I'm actually observing my tendency to dissociate away from, to resist awareness of shadow material. And then after a while, what you do is you start feeling the flavor of that resistance and you get interested in it. Now, the left hemisphere is, is, is involved with attraction emotions like interest. The right hemisphere is involved with repulsion emotions like fear and avoidance. The more you do contemplative work, the more you, you activate and myelinate those attraction emotion circuits in the left hemisphere to make, it e to make it easier. Oh, I'm ashamed. How interesting. I'm frightened. How interesting. I'm angry. How interesting. Yeah. When, when it becomes object of interest, you're, now you're, you're beginning to change your habits. You're naturally moving towards shadow material when it arises. Well, that, that's development too, isn't it? I mean, you're actually yeah. moving into a, a new stage of development. Yeah. And, and is it true? I noticed in, in some, some of the notes you sent me that you talk about people who are at red and amber um, use uh, ceremony and ritual can be more effective for them than psychotherapy. Did I Absolutely. read that right? Is this a process of... Like, what do you do? Are, do you run into people who, you know, maybe developmentally they just can't do self-observation? Yes. Or, yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. How does that sort out developmentally? Well, on a larger sense, all the stuff that we're talking about can be discussed in every value meme in the language of that value meme. Okay. So, so that's just just what you do as an integral therapist. You know, you just, you know, wherever someone's primary language is, that's, where you, that's the, the worldview that you, you, you operate in. So I come in and I'm, I'm red. You know, I'm just yeah. full of anger and, and might is right and I'm a victim and uh, I need to, you know, get them before they get me. And, you know, it's as simple as that. So 
how do you work with me there? As a red guy, I go, okay, you know, you have lots of warrior impulses. And so we need to take your warrior impulses and we need to have them be ameliorated by your man of wisdom. We need to cultivate your man of wisdom. So you're going to shift from warrior to man of wisdom and we're going to talk about how to do that. Because man of wisdom is still, for him, a power god archetype, but it's a more mature power archetype than the warrior. His archetype of the warrior is somebody fucks with me, then, you know, whatever. I do whatever whatever red thing I do. Man of wisdom now has another level of power. And so we start working with that. Now, this is complicated. You know, one thing about being a therapist is you make things, when you talk about it, you make it sound easy. This is not easy. It's really hard. And red people very rarely enter therapy and rarely stay in therapy. It's just a characteristic. You know, people that essentially indulge violence, the more you indulge psychological, emotional, or physical violence, the less able you are to self-reflect because your brain has to dissociate to do violence. And if you practice dissociating away from violence enough, um, you pass over a threshold. You know, this is, and you know, there's a lot of people that are lost because they've just gone too far over the wall, so to speak. And if somebody wants to change, if they're willing to examine their violence, they can come back. But, you know, the, the farther you've gone down it, the farther you have to climb uphill to get to the wall. It's just, that's just the nature of the work. For instance, right. people with borderline personality disorder are enormously violent psychologically and hard to work with. They're, not, they're, not, they're hard to work with not necessarily technically. I mean, the technical work is painful, but it's pretty straightforward. But they're hard to work with in that they don't stay in therapy because they don't want to examine their violent impulses and see them as destructive. They want to blame other people. They want to blame their parents. They want to blame the other people. And so when you say we're not going to do that, we're going to deal with your own emotional violence that you naturally generate, they go, fuck you. You know, you're a bad therapist. I'm going to go find somebody who's going to agree with me. (laughs) And so they're they're lost until they're willing to do that particular work. to To this day, I think dialectical behavior therapy, which is designed for borderlines, works partly because borderlines by nature are stingy. You know, you're selfish, you're stingy. You've got to pay fourteen or $15,000 up front. And if you have to pay fourteen or $15,000 up front, you're less likely to need therapy because you don't, you don't get a refund. <laughs> right. You know, now that I think about it, I should do that. And next time I have a borderline come in, I say, you know, you have borderline personality disorder. You've got to give me $15,000 up front. And if you drop out of therapy, I keep the change. I, I think I'd probably get a letter to a licensing board. But that would be a more effective way of working with them. And so, you know, it's more complicated, but that's how you work. With, with, with Blue, you know, people, Blue, blue clients um, who are honest to God, Blue, if they have a sacred text, I don't care what it is, it could be the big book, it could be the Bible, it could be the Koran, it could be the writings of Baha'u'llah, it could be the Tao Te Ching. I mean, they're all great sacred texts. You know, mine was Book of Five Rings. That's fine. You know, you know their, their growth and their self-awareness. There's, there's room in every system, in every tradition for awakening. And so, you know, I know that. And so whatever, whatever their blue system is, we go into that blue system and, and they can awaken in a way that's consistent with their sacred values. And, and, and you know, the, it's not that blue people are against science in that sense or neurobiology. As long as the neurobiology is consistent with the sacred text, they'll go along with it. And so, you know, I can tell them the, the, tell them the neurobiological stuff that will help them be comforting. You know, say, say you, they, you go, I'm a sinner if I lust after my, my, my neighbor's wife. Or, um, uh, you know, my son uh, yells at me and is disrespectful. And, you know, the Bible says that, you know, children should be respectful. And I go, all right, you know, really good point. And this is how his nervous system is. You know, he's not consciously deciding to be disrespectful. He just enters a state where disrespect comes out of his nervous system. How do we train his nervous system to be more consistent with the sacred values? You know, we're not going to do it by, by talking to him because he's not listening when he's upset. He can't process information. We have to do it by, by helping him enter a state of consciousness where he can receive wisdom. How do we do that? Yelling at him doesn't work. Hitting him doesn't work. You know, oh, well, you know, kindly giving him some room to calm down and then going to the more core value that you share in your family. Hmm, that works. And, you know, he'll try it and it will work. Okay. So that's what we do with blue. With orange, you know, it's just straightforward. You know, the people down the street, you know, they're happier than you are, so why don't you do the work so you can be as happy as them? 
you know, get real competitive. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you know, the guy over there, you know, he took care of his PS, PTSD in five weeks, you know, we, you know, in 10 weeks. Let's beat him. You know, let's, let's, let's take care of your PTSD in eight weeks, you know. And with Green, of course, it's, you know, we all want to love each other all the time. But, you know, pretending to love you. Now, this is an important confrontation to Green. Loving each other all the time and being caring to each other all the time is not the same as pretending to love each other all the time. And so you're, you're doing a lot of pretending over here. So let's right. arrange things so that you're not pretending anymore. You're actually really loving people more. Let's actually do that. Okay. Yeah. And again, that's where finding out the actual limits of the nervous system and of other people's nervous systems helps. It helps knowing the limits of other people's nervous systems. If you can observe another person passing a threshold by which they can't really have dialogue anymore, then what you start doing is you can, if you notice that, if you can observe that, you can observe them as basically neurologically challenged at that point and realize you have to become a soothing presence or they're just not going to be able to be in a, in a, engage in social, have social engagement. And if I can observe that in somebody, you know, if I see somebody go past that point and I stop trying to make, to advocate, you know, and I just start trying to calm everybody down. Yeah. Um, if you're aware of those things, there's a place where you're, if you're talking to someone and if you're getting upset psychologically or if you're just in the world getting upset psychologically and your pulse goes about above 100, you're in an area that's called diffuse physiological arousal where you really can't process information. Now, if I'm aware of myself hitting there, I know what I need to do. I need to calm my nervous system down autonomically. And if somebody else is there, I need to know that I can't have dialogue with them anymore. I need, to, I need to go into soothing mode until they're in that range of being able to, to have social engagement. And then we can, you know, do some processing. And this is why when people talk about somatic psychotherapy, to me, that's always a redundancy. I mean, all psychotherapy is somatic. You know, whether you're touching people or not, having to move around or do postures or yoga or whatever or not, you're always working with this combination between the bodily experience, the visceral connections with the past and the present and the future, and with people's consciousness and with their value system. They're all happening all at the same time. Yeah. And there's neurobiological correlates and limits to all those things. And if we don't know yeah. the limits, we have the danger of having our metaphorical system make claims that we can't really follow up on, which happens in almost every system. Hypnosis is a good example. People have great experiences with hypnosis, makes claims that are beyond what hypnosis can do, and then people feel like hypnosis is bullshit and don't do it, and then it gets rediscovered again. You know, you see that happen again and again. I've seen that happen with hypnosis three or four times in my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what, as you walked us up through, you know, the blue, amber, and orange, and green, what, what do you... What have you discovered about the nervous system neurobiology of teal and turquoise of the of the integral stages of development? Uh, it makes me smile, <laughs> Jeff. You know, development is fun. Yeah, you. It's, we know we never get to a point where there's no suffering, but suffering gets a lot more tolerable. Yeah. You know, I forget what Ken said. It's something about you know you feel it more, but it bothers you less. Something like that. Yeah, and, and so the, it's one of the reasons that, that as integral in second tier people we need sangha. You know, if, if you don't have people that you can have these kinds of conversations with, you feel pretty lonely. Yeah. But beyond that, you know, in teal, there's this, this is the whole concept of flex flow of relative truth um, becomes a visceral reality in teal. In other words, I know that. I, I, this, isn't a con, this isn't a construct for, for me or for you either, that all the truth that I have right now and everything that we're saying is relative truth. Almost any one of the constructs that I've talked about today, if you gave me relevant right quadrant data, I, I, I like right quadrant data, that, that, that jived with left quadrant uh, subjective experience, that one of those constructs was wrong in some significant way, I'd change that construct instantaneously. You know, I like that. You know, teal is very flexible around those kinds like, of things. Could you, can you think of an example or, uh, of how that works? Yeah. Back in the 70s, everybody, there was this guy named, um, uh, what was his name? His name was uh, Bach, you know, George Bach. And so, you know, he had everybody, you know, get together in groups and 
remember the population he was working with. He was working with repressed middle class uh, Americans, not the hippies. He was working with the hippies' parents mostly. And he would have people get patakas and beat on things and you have get their anger out. So he developed this whole discharge notion of anger. You know, you get mad about stuff. And so what you do is you just, you know, get a, you know, beat on something or yell at something or, you know, whatever. I'm getting my anger out. It was the catharsis method of anger. Okay. I've done my you know, share of that widely, in the old days. Yeah, it was widely accepted by therapists. I always was suspicious of it myself, I've got to say. there's a little bit of Keith's ego saying I was suspicious all along anyway so so scientists in the 70s particularly cognitive scientists you know a lot of the behaviorists had to turn into cognitive researchers in the 70s because all the behavioral money dried up (laughs) to get their research funding they had to start studying cognition all right and so they started having to do you know more more interesting experiments and they found that when you cathartic when you beat on something you know what you're doing you're practicing being angry and it didn't make you a less angry person at all in fact the more you did that you became a more angry person and so when I found that out I went okay so the, that area of catharsis is a response to anger is a flawed concept now you know everybody gets to be right why did George Bach why did his system seem to work so well for everybody well, it worked well for everybody because that generation, our parents' generation, they were the autistic generation. They had grown up dissociating away from their bodies and emotions. And so what George Bach did is when he had people beat on chairs, they actually felt their anger. So yeah. they removed the blocks of dissociation and allowed their brains to start integrating. And so that part of it, actually getting to the point where you feel the anger or you feel the fear or you feel the shame or you feel the lust is a necessary start uh, step because if it's dissociated, if there's no felt experience, there's no change. So that part of it was relevant. But the discharge part, the catharsis part was bullshit. Okay. And so when I got access to that data, then again, okay, George Box stuff is really good for people who are dissociated, but when we get to the point where they feel their anger, now we want to turn that anger from hostile anger into impact anger, which means you deconstruct it very quickly. You know, generally when you feel anger, what you want to do is be working to be not angry, and ideally if it's with another person, you want to work cooperatively to turn anger into love with that person or into affection. That is the most efficient, most pro-social and best for your autonomic nervous system. And that has been supported by lots and lots of research. And this is where the right quadrants really uh, mesh with the left quadrants and where there was a schism in psychotherapy because the humanists tended to get really contemptuous of the experimentalists who were totally contemptuous of the humanists. And so they were, the, sub, the, the, the right quadrant people were really missing out on the left quadrant wisdom, and the left quadrant people were really missing out on the white quadrant, right quadrant data. You know, it just drove me crazy because I like both of them a lot. You know, and after a while, I've, I found that, you know, I would just, I, I, I was kind of like talking to fundamentalists. You know, I, I wouldn't talk much about the humanistic stuff when I was talking to the experimental people. We'd not talk science with each other, which was fun. And with the humanistic people, I'd kind of keep the science in my back pocket and bring it out if they were interested. But these days now, we're in cross-disciplinary territory in the 21st century. There's not nearly so much of that. People forget, you know, what a schism there was in the 70s. Yeah. So that's an example. You know, the anger thing was an example where, you know, new data just caused me to change, at least for me, and, and ultimately the profession. You find very few people that are catharsis enthusiasts in psychotherapy these days. Right. Another yeah, one so is this idea. Really there just really is a, an ability to flex and flow. Yeah, yeah. Another, yeah. Another one is, say, uh, multiple personality disorder, disassociative identity disorder. Um, when people first started discovering multiple personality disorder, um, a lot of therapists didn't even believe in it. But, you know, I'm sorry, it, it, it happened. I, I remember once I hypnotized a woman back 30 years ago, and let's say her name was, I'm not going to tell her real name, say her name was Jennifer. And so, you know, we went levels deeper. And I said, you know, and all of a sudden this weird voice started talking. And I said, well, let me talk to Jennifer. And the weird voice said, Jennifer's not here. I went, oh, shit. You know, this person had been majorly traumatized. And I, now I had a case of dissociated uh, identity disorder, multiple personality disorder I was working with. 
Okay, we found that there's, there's principles that inform us about disassociative identity disorder. For instance, um, you have to be severely abused before eight to develop disassociative identity disorder. Uh, people after eight, their brains are too well or too mature to go to that particular defense. So, you know, you know if somebody has that, that they were majorly abused before they were eight years old. And also we've discovered that you, you can't eliminate the subpersonalities. They have to be integrated. And so, you know, modern treatment for dissociative identity disorder is you just get everybody talking to each other. But you're getting everybody talking to each other from a perspective of a value system that's a nonviolent value system and a pro-social value system. And this is where the lower left quadrant really matters. Um, and, you know, and, and to, as, as a practical person, as a therapist, um, values really matter. And everybody carries them around, and values need to be refined. And the processes for refining values are quite complicated. You know, blue does not believe in refining values. Blue believes there are that one set of values, and that's it. And if you try to change them, then you're crazy or or sinful. Yeah. You know, orange tends to be more pragmatic about it, and red, it's you know whatever I can get away with. Um, and you know, green, interestingly, kind of goes back to blue. You know, if you have a value that goes against egalitarianism, you really have to, that's very difficult for green. Yeah. But anytime you have that lower left quadrant uh, block, basically what it does is it causes you to dissociate when you get to a point where it's time to refine your values. Well, it slows you down. And so yeah. that's a point where you you want you want to activate new circuits. Um, and, you know, understanding, you know, how that works neurobiologically, particularly how the whole process of, of myelinization and, and habit formation and so on, is priceless, you know, and it, at least for me, you know, in terms of doing change work. And so that's the, that's the neurobiology of shadow. It's, it's be, be really cautious of your metaphors. You know, d- d- is my metaphor consistent with white, right quadrant research about how people function? Because no matter how beautiful a metaphor is, you know, say you do ceremony. Okay, so you know, every once in a while you do ceremony with people. I do ceremony with people if I have an opportunity. You know, therapy is a great opportunity to do ceremony. So at the end of the ceremony, people will have a transcendent experience where they go, "Wow, I'm I'm healed. Everything is great." Okay, well I know how brains work. I go, "Yeah, everything's great. This is this now is a guide for you." This experience, remember this experience, write it down, you know, maybe give them a little token or, or a note or something. You know, and you have habits in your brain to bring the old stuff back, but when that happens, remember this moment. You know, remember this. And this now will guide you. It will be a light in a dark night. And it will take yeah. you out of, out, of, out of dark places into the light. It will take you out of rage into love. And remember this yeah. moment. And it will yeah. guide you. And so that helps me. I can, I can say use it as a guide because I know how brains work rather than, yeah, you're re- you've resolved your issue now. Because, you know, you get grandiose when somebody does that. You want to say, yeah, we've just resolved your issue. Well, we haven't resolved your issue, but we've made progress. Yeah. Okay. And so the, knowing the right quadrants helps me understand my own metaphors there as a therapist. Yeah. Well, and that little totem or token just enables me to get a little distance from yeah. whatever, you know, compulsive or conditioned response is coming up. Yeah, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that. One last point. We are all re- wired as, as human beings for being obsessive and being addictive. You know, we were born addicted to other human beings socially, and that's an addiction that, that's a pro-social good addiction that lasts all throughout life. But, but all those capacities in humans, that comp- anything that we do, we have a capacity to be addictive or obsessive about it, and even a tendency to be obs- addictive and obsessive about it. And we have such powerful brains. Once our brains start being harnessed in service of addiction or, or obsession, watch out. We can start myelinating circuits that are just crazy fucked up circuits. And when that happens, bad things ensue. And, and knowing that those, those circuits now need to be integrated into larger circuits that are less obsessive and less addictive and so on, and that there's actual steps that we can take, um, really helps. And one thing that helps is that when we have an insight, 
we have a little rush of dopamine in our brain, which is one of the pleasure neurochemicals. Um, and so insight is something that humans like. It's associated with the instinct to self-transcend, I suspect. Um, and so we want to find those little trail of insights. You know, they're like breadcrumbs. They lead us. You know, they lead us uh, into growth. Um, and, you know, teach people that, you know, you, have the, you can find your way out of an addiction. You can find your way out of that obsession. You know, just find that trail. You know, look for the little trail of insights. They're there for you. You know, in, in conjunction with other people, you know, in conjunction with the world. Because the mm-hmm. world is always reflecting us back to us. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, talk about it makes me smile. I mean, it just does <laughs> to think that really, that we really can find our way out of these messes that we find ourselves in. Yeah. And that we're actually rewiring the brain as we do so. And that that exactly. is possible and that it takes a little patience and it takes a little intention, but we can do it. And that's just, a, in this moment, quite a thrilling thought and realization. Yeah. Talk about an insight. I mean, I think I just got a rush of dopamine there. <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> <laughs> there it went. <laughs> you can see why I love this stuff so much. No kidding, you know, I, man. I just love this stuff. Yeah, me too. Love it. Yeah, and it's always so good to talk to you about it. I see we're probably a little over time here, but what a great discussion, Keith. Yeah, and, uh, fun. as always, so appreciate your insights and uh, how you help us sort it all out. So thank well, you, man. Thank you. I love these talks. So we'll see you next time, huh? Yeah, let's talk about um, uh, Clueless to Dial In next time, uh, Integral Mindful Living. I'm writing a book about it, and I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. From Clueless to Dialed In. Yeah, yeah, that's my new, right. uh, it's a book, I'm, <laughs> Integral Mindful Living, Clueless to Dialed In. <laughs> great, yeah. All right, well, we'll talk great. about that in January. Cool, man. Yes, well, we thanks, will. Keith, thanks, everybody, and we'll see yes. you then. I'll see you then. Much love. Bye-bye.